Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Carolyn Eastman, author of The Strange Genius of Mr. O, The World of the United States' First Forgotten Celebrity, published in 2021 by the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture and the University of North Carolina Press. Carolyn is the Associate Professor of History at Virginia Commonwealth University. Carolyn, congratulations on the book and welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Carolyn, this is a beautifully written and a fascinating story about this wonderful individual, uh, Mr. O, James Ogilvie, that tells us so much about what celebrity culture in the early years of the American Republic was like. So I can't wait to dive into it with you. But first, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm a historian at Virginia Commonwealth University. I teach courses on uh, gender and the history of sexuality in America, the American Revolution and the early American Republic. And I've always been interested in the history of how people engaged with the media. So how did people engage with the books they read? How did they learn to write themselves? Um, Also, how did people engage with various kinds of public speakers? And how did they learn to speak themselves, as well as with uh, visual culture as well? That's another aspect of my research. So I'm interested in that because I think that those kinds of engagements with not just prominent speakers, prominent writers, um, important artwork, but, but, but really how Americans learn to understand themselves in relationship to and in engagement with other forms of media. So, so that's always been a sort of foundation for my, uh, my own research and continues to be. That's so interesting. And this project, this new book that we're talking about, The Strange Genius of Mr. O, is such a vivid case study of that uh, research interest. Now, to get into it a little bit, you know, the book's called The Strange Genius of Mr. O. The, the subtitles, the, the World of the United States' First Forgotten Celebrity. Well, certainly, James Ogilvie wasn't the first famous person in American history. There's plenty of famous politicians or writers or preachers, but what made Mr. O such a unique kind of celebrity? Yeah. And of course he was, he became a household name at a moment long before we think of a real celebrity culture blooming in the United States. He was becoming famous from about 1808 to 1820. So this was even before people like Ralph Waldo Emerson went on the lecture tour before Abraham Lincoln became a famous orator as at the same time he was becoming uh, politically active. Um, So Ogilvy was sort of innovating a kind of stage performance 
at a moment when Americans didn't have a real lot of celebrities. Um, so, so Ogilvy was a Scottish immigrant. He came to the United States as a 20 year old and he had taught school for a long time, a sort of, you know, a, a profession that was not well paid. It didn't give one a lot of social status. And it was hard. I mean, hard the way that teaching continues to be hard. He was teaching up to 50 students at a time of all different ages. He was working, you know, 12, 13 hour days. And at some point along the way, he began to realize that he had an unusual talent for public speaking. He was able to get in front of a crowd and really have an effect on that crowd as he talked about issues that were important to the early American Republic. So issues like the topic of dueling during a period when, of course, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr had had their famous duel, but there were dozens of duels, you know, every month across the United States. This was a topic of major importance for many Americans. He talked about subjects like female education, um, a topic that was controversial in some ways at the time. And what he tried to do when he got up on stage was sort of enact the process of thinking through the various sides of any issue. He was trying in a lot of ways to help people come to educated opinions of their own about these topics. He wasn't trying to answer questions so much for people, but he wanted to bring people together in a room and sort of have everyone think together in a way that enacted a kind of community. And so at a time in the United States when the United States, I mean, we, I think we like to imagine that the U.S. after the revolution and everyone had come together and they were united as a United States, that's far from the truth. In fact, the United States was as fragmented, as sort of divided as it has ever been. Um, and, and so his performances, which he conducted all across the United States at the time, um, I'm, I think I've got my numbers right. He actually performed in 17 of the 19 U.S. states at the time, as well as two different territories, parts of lower Canada. And so what he was doing as he did this and as he became more famous was really bringing people together across the various kinds of political and religious and regional divides and had them think together about these important subjects. And so as he became famous, I think, again, that just brought more people in to his, uh, his lecture halls. Hmm. Well, Carolyn, it's, it's so fascinating. And one of the things that I appreciated about your book is how much it sheds light on the, the culture around elocutionary education and, and what oratory meant in this, this early republic. Um, my, one of my favorite um, parts of the book are the the diagrams of all the different gestures and how important gesturing was um, in sophisticated speech. So, so could you talk a little bit about the the culture around orality and 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 what that meant to 
to early Americans? Yeah, I think that, you know, if you if you're listening and you think of this as a book in part about the history of public speaking or the history of oratory, that might sound really boring and really old fashioned. And I think that, um, in fact, if you start to put yourself back into the early American Republic and you think about what they were trying to do in creating a republic, they had no models. You know, they they had gotten rid of the monarchy in creating this new country and so their their models for creating a political culture were based on the classical republics of Greece and Rome. And in those republics, as everyone learned in school, great orators were crucial to mm. creating dialogue, to creating debate about important subjects, and to guiding the public forward in making important decisions um, at the political and religious level as well. And, and so when Ogilvy sort of stepped into the role of being the United States's first famous orator, just orator full stop, he was in many ways reminding people about the power of oratory to bring people together, not to make everyone agree, but to bring people together as they as they try to make certain kinds of decisions for themselves and for their country. And so a lot of the book in some ways is trying to help us all reconstruct this early moment in the U.S. when these kinds of, again, political and religious and social divides were were somewhat mitigated by the role of great orators. And that would continue throughout the 19th century. And so when you got great orators like Ralph Waldo Emerson, like Susan B. Anthony, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, like Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and many, Daniel Webster, many political orators, those people were following in the wake of what Ogilvy created and, and established for people earlier in the century. So I think that one of the things that made this book so much fun to write is that it gave me a chance to try to do something that a historian, unlike different kinds of historians, we have a really hard time reconstructing what it was like to listen to somebody at that time. Because again, the the repertoire of gestures was so different than today. It, it looks very theatrical. And in fact, um, public speakers and ministers and lawyers learned the same sort of repertoire of gestures as actors at the time. So there was a lot of very dramatic hand movements and positions of the feet and, you know, beating the chest and looking up at the heavens and, and on and on. And looking at the ways that all of these people learned how to do this sort of performance of public speaking sort of helps us get back into a world where you didn't have microphones, you didn't have any other way of projecting your voice. And so your body had to do a lot of the acting for you. Mm. You talked about how Ogilvy is in many ways before the, the true modern celebrity culture that we know where you have agents and publicists and people who are managing a person's image and, and reputation. 
So there's this really fascinating device that Ogilvy used to to promote himself and that in in a sense he was building his own fame on people's needs to feel more urban and sophisticated. Ogilvy manipulated um, provincial pride, as it were, to, to build his own sense of self. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, when he left, he left his teaching job, got on a horse and set out and sort of began trying to sell tickets to his performances. He was kind of a nobody. I mean, nobody knew who he was. Nobody had any reason to pay 50 cents a ticket at the time, which would have been a significant amount of money. I mean, you know, um, probably half a day's wages for a laborer at the time. So this was something that appealed to middle class and wealthy people who had disposable income. But but why would they go to hear this person that no one had ever heard of? And there was one point in early, early in his career when he began to perform on stage, but there were only five people in, in the audience and they tried to stop him. And they said, look, you know, you're not going to perform for only five people. Let, let's just, you know, we'll just come back tomorrow or something. And but Ogilvy insisted on doing it. And the men at the end of that performance were so impressed with his um, ideas, with his eloquence, with his uh, gracefulness on stage, that they promised the very next night that they would they would fill the house, and they did. And what he learned as he did that in, in the course of this, as he re- recalls vividly in his kooky uh, memoir that he writes later in his life, He learned that if he was able to sort of deploy the reputations of people in any given place, he would be able to fill his audience, fill his halls every time. And so he began to talk to every person of significance, person of wealth and standing that he could to ask them for letters of support. And in fact, he was able to get a letter of introduction from Thomas Jefferson, whose grandson he had tutored in Charlottesville. He was able to get then Jefferson's addressees to write letters as he continued on down the road. When he showed up in any given place, he would often introduce himself to an important minister in town and try to sit down with that person and, you know, reveal himself to be an upright and learned person who was worth listening to. And, and so he was able to sort of use, I call them social networks because he was essentially meeting uh, significant people in every place and asking them to continue supporting him as he went forward. And so he would wind up with these packets of letters. And so every time he showed up in a, you know, he'd go to Philadelphia, he'd go to uh, New York, he'd go to Hartford, Connecticut, and so on and so on down the road, he would have these packets of letters to deliver to people. And so it was only after he had built this kind of regional fame that the newspapers really began picking up on him and they began to talk about him in exalted terms, in part because Ogilvy's halls were full of important people and important men's wives and daughters looking very respectable in their best clothes. And so in a lot of ways, 
um, by, you know, about a year after he had begun, people in, say, Haverhill, Massachusetts, were loath to complain that they didn't like his oratory because <laughs> so many people of importance had begun to sort of back him. And so it, it was as if it was a snowballing kind of fame that ultimately ballooned into what everyone at the time called celebrity. Mm. Okay, so we have to talk about the toga in the room. <laughs> Ogilvy wore a toga and no one seems to have found this odd. Can you tell no. me what that meant? <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I realized that that's what he was wearing. Um, and and it's not that... It's not that... Um, you know, we have our own meanings of a toga. And I and I think that's really what I brought to it when I first realized that, that when Ogilvy got up on stage, he was in a toga. Um, but what really surprised me was what you just said. Nobody talked about it. And in fact, I think overall, I probably found five references to the toga, explicitly mentioning a toga. Um, and, you know, two of them were from... Um, a little bit later in his career, Ogilvy had imitators, people who would often sort of follow him around the country, giving uh, talks on very similar, if not identical topics. And they wore togas and they mentioned the toga in their advertisements. Uh, they would say things like, I'm wearing the, to the toga just like the celebrated Mr. O or whatever. Um, but I think... You know, when we think of a toga, we think of a very particular kind of costume that maybe drunk fraternity boys wear at parties. <laughs> and so it's hard to imagine how wearing a toga might convey authority or or convey anything at all other than something that should be mocked. But even Ogilvy's strongest you know, haters did not mention the toga when they were making fun of him or when they were complaining about him. In fact, the toga was something, again, that gestured back to the classical Roman Republic. So the toga signified a publicly oriented human being, uh, someone who was thinking on behalf of the public, trying to do the right thing as he guided the public to think about certain things. And so the toga, you know, I actually dedicate an entire chapter just to thinking about the toga and its meaning for this public mindedness, but also about manliness. It signified a strong a set of connotations about good men and good men doing the right thing on behalf of everyone else. So yeah, the toga, who would have thought? Well, we, we know that Mr. O uh, was, was celebrated for this uh, kind of philosophical oratory talking about all of these hot button issues and trying to, to guide public conversation on these um, significant issues of his day. Did that oratory skill automatically translate into uh, a successful book deal? You know, maybe we tend to associate that based on current celebrity culture, that if you're, if you're a gifted speaker, that uh, it's going to mean you're going to have a, a lucrative publishing career. Was that the case for Mr. O? 
Oh, you're setting me up. Um, so unfortunately, in this case, Ogilvy would have been better off if he had just stuck to public speaking. And it's it's an interesting aspect of the story because he was very ambitious uh, from the time he was a young man. And so when he achieved the kind of heights of celebrity that he did on stage, he began to think about how he might be able to establish a more, what he called a more permanent and lasting celebrity. And he believed that that was premised on finishing a book, publishing a book and becoming known as a philosophical writer. And so, yeah, in 1816, he published a hastily written book that included a somewhat kooky and rambling and very clearly narcissistic memoir of his life and people hated it in a way that although he had had a few detractors along the way about his public speaking people who hadn't been convinced or they were worried about other aspects of his uh, personality for example ogilvy was a an atheist and was very clear about that in his um discussions with people off stage people some people feared that he was trying to advocate for atheism from the stage um anyway although he had had those kinds of detractors the book was was a moment when critics around the country piled on it was so bad and and it in fact it makes for uh, i think a a funny and revealing moment in Ogilvy's life when he thought that he was going to not just be recognized as a philosophical writer, but maybe he could also translate his success as a speaker and a writer into some kind of a teaching position at a university. And none of those things were proved to be the case. And so um, his, his really disastrous book uh, proved to be a real low point in his career. So, in fact, not long after he published it, he decided to uh, leave the United States for the first time since he had arrived at the age of 20. By this time, he was about 42. Uh, and he went back to the UK. He went to England and Scotland and tried to reproduce his celebrity speaking career there. So it's it's a it's a moment when I think a lot of Ogilvy's struggles caught up with him. Mm. Well, speaking of Ogilvy's struggles, toward the end of your research, you made a, a really profound discovery that shed a lot of insight into Ogilvy and into his his inner life uh, throughout his career. Um, could you talk a little bit about the role of the historian? With respect to mental health, especially when there's you know two centuries of distance from the subject that you're trying to uh, to learn about and to get to know. Yeah, you know, in writing this this biographically oriented history, I was primarily focused on trying to reconstruct the world of the early United States. I was not really trying to psychoanalyze James Ogilvy. I was trying to figure out why 
did Ogilvy in particular make this enormous splash at the time. And so I had been really oriented on the kind of effects Ogilvy had on his audiences and on the United States as a whole. And then, you know, in, in England and Scotland as well. And But then, yes, at the end of my research, I discovered a letter that Ogilvy had wanted to keep private, um, which was a little bit unusual for him. He tended to be sort of an open book. But um, it was a letter that revealed a lot about his struggles with with mental health. And I'm not going to talk a lot about it because it's something that I save for the very end of the book. And it, I think, makes an enormously satisfying ending to the book because what I do as I sort of plumb exactly those questions that you're asking about is I really try to think about how can we, from our point, you know, 200 years into beyond Ogilvy's time and place, how can we think about the nature of his own um, struggles and his his solutions? How, How did he solve the problems that he felt that he had before him? And I think that ultimately what this really reveals is the extent to which we need to understand people in the past on their own terms. And the United States in that time on its own terms. And that if we do that, we can learn so much more about that time and those people rather than placing our sort of categories based on 21st century, maybe uh, social and cultural and uh, psychological categories onto the past. And so it's really in the end an opportunity, I think, for this book to think deeply about the importance of history and how much we can learn about it. Hmm. Well, Carolyn, you have been so generous with your time to talk about this wonderful project, The Strange Genius of Mr. O. I really hope our listeners get a copy. So, so now that you've finished this project, what's on the horizon for you? Um, so I am starting a new book on... The, on New York's experience of the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s. And, you know, I had been working on a very different project as of March of 2020. And then when, when COVID hit, I turned to this project because I had kept a digital copy of a diary of a young doctor from the 1790s, a doctor who not just tried to... Um, uh, heal people during New York's really terrible yellow fever epidemics from that period, but a man who lost everyone in his family to that disease. And the more I worked on it and the more I thought about the way that, um, for a lot of us, we, we know about Philadelphia's terrible yellow fever epidemic of 1793, but that's sort of where it ends. And so I wanted to tell New York's story in part because we were all watching from afar about um, what New York experienced during COVID during April and May of 2020. And so I am off and running. I'm working on this book. I've been uh, very much located in New York doing that research. And I'm finding 
incredible things about the black and white New Yorkers who combated the disease, who suffered from it, and who ultimately survived and built a slightly different kind of city as a result. So that's where I'm going. Well, I can't wait for that project to uh, come to completion and and read all about it uh, once it's ready. Well, this has been a conversation with Carolyn Eastman, author of The Strange Genius of Mr. O, The World of the United States' First Forgotten Celebrity. You can get your copy now from the Omohundro Institute and the University of North Carolina Press. Carolyn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much and for the important work that you guys do. Well, thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the New Books Network. You can visit newbooksnetwork.com where you can browse our catalog of over 10,000 episodes. I invite you to go and explore. There's something for you no matter what subject you're interested in. But that's it for now. I hope you have a great day.